Welcome to another episode of the Truth and Legend podcast. We're on episode 11, and today we have a guest coming to us from Vancouver. And uh, I just found him on the internet, found him watching YouTube, and I thought, man, it'd be kind of cool to talk to this guy because he's in the same boat as we are. We're just kind of starting out on YouTube trying to figure it out, and I just thought it would be a good conversation. So James Freistack is a wildlife cinematographer. He's done a lot of cool stuff. He's actually won an Emmy, which is really cool, and we thought it'd be awesome to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. What's your coolest experience you've had in the last month? In the last month? Wow. Well, I won an Emmy in the last month. So that was... <laughs> well, pretty- is it that soon? Is oh, it man. That it's recent? brand new. <laughs> yeah, it was just in uh, December or uh, mid-December and we were um, down in LA and we went down to the uh, Emmys and um, yeah, so that happened. <laughs> awesome. I was going to put it in the background on the top of the shop. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it'd be too cheesy. No, I'm like, uh, I'll keep it out. <laughs> no. But, there it is. <laughs> Show it off. If you were interviewing me, I'd have, I'd have come on the screen like this. I'll just do a whole podcast like this. Like <laughs> just <laughs> caress it. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's got to be for you. I mean, there's guys that work in the industry for years and years and years and just constantly miss it. I mean, a lot of people get nominated, but man, actually winning one is really cool. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty surreal. Like, I mean, working for Jeff Turner at River Road Films, the guy is an absolute legend. And he, like, you know, he's been at this for 30 plus years. And, um, you know, he's just just as excited as we are, like, this being like his first, like, really, really big trophy. So, you know, I'm pretty new at the game. I've been uh, shooting natural history for about seven, eight years. And, um, and, and I got an Emmy already. So, and, and, and I mean, that was just fortunate because, you know, I was on the River Road working for the river road camp and uh, just the, you know, team that he's built over the decades. Um, yeah. It was inevitable that he was going to eventually crack that code and, and figure out how to win some trophies. So, yeah. So everybody listening needs to go watch James channel and obviously we'll link to it in the show notes and stuff, but you'll watch the the video he did about the, about the Emmy and getting it. Um, and then your road to getting here is like, it is, it's fairly recent as far as filming terms go. I mean, I think you said you started, you were an electrician and then you started in what, 2015 or 16 is when you bought your first camera, right? That's correct. And that was more for adventure travel because you were just like, I got to get out of, I'm assuming it's like, I got to get out of cold Canada and go to Tahiti or Thailand or wherever, all the places you were going. Well, there's that. And also I'd go to cold Alaska where you guys are and climbing up and up and uh, climbed an alley and did some shooting up there. And um, that was kind of like my first kickoff experience to saying, all right, I'm going to try to work as a freelance photographer, filmmaker. I didn't really know what I was doing. I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing, but at least back then I really had no idea. Um, so yeah, it was just, um, you know, getting that camera was just this more of a hobby at first, but then I was kind of forced in a situation losing my job as an electrician and thinking that I needed to do something different. And I had a bit of savings at the time. So it was just, working so much overtime and I uh, just said, all right, I'm going to take this whole year off and I'm just going to hone my skills as a photographer and maybe a filmmaker and have a crack at this. And um, one thing led to another and it's just, it's literally, I was in the right room at the right time. I met the right person. And um, it, I, I feel like to this day, I got super lucky. And I was actually chatting with, with that guy this morning, uh, coincidentally. And um, I thank him all the time, actually, after all these years that man, you gave me that chance and you didn't know me. I didn't know you, but we just had mutual friends in common and um, 
just gave me that opportunity to go for it. And, and with that, I just, just really ran with it. And, yeah. Is that the guy that you climbed Denali with? Is that who you're referring to? No, that's uh, oh. a friend of that guy. So, yeah, oh, okay. Just, got it. Yeah. But how, how like scary is that? I mean, you think of big mountain climbing and you think of adventure, but you also think of the danger and it's like, do you sit back and you're like, Hmm, I want to do this. And this would be like a great launching point. Right. But I've also got to climb Denali where people die. <laughs> was it like one of those gut wrenching things? And I always say, unless you feel, if you don't feel a knot in your stomach, when you go embark on a new adventure, you probably, it's probably a, you know, not that much fun to go do, but if you have that knot in your stomach, it's, it's one of those really cool adventures. So what was that feeling like when they're like, Hey, can you come shoot this? Oh, that was, yeah. I, yeah. I actually almost backed out like a couple of weeks before we were about to leave. Like I was just thinking to myself, like, I'm going to climb Denali Lake. <laughs> you know, I, I was a avid trail runner at that time. Like I was in really prime shape for running ultra marathons at that time. So like I, I was like physically fit and capable of it. And my climbing resume, like I climbed a lot of decent sized mountains around the world and so it was still within my skill set, but Denali had this allure to it, and it, it really did freak me out, actually. And just a few weeks before we left, I was just like, whoa, I don't know about this. This is this is a little much. Um, <laughs> and I had a chat with a guy that was uh, kind of going to be documenting while I was up there, and I was like, I don't know about this. Like, This, is, this is, feels like it's over my head. But then he actually talked some sense into me and just saying, like, you know, just because we get to base camp doesn't mean we have to go to camp one or camp two or... You know, just because we get to, you know, camp four doesn't mean you have to go to the the summit, right? It's all good. And he just was, he can't, he, he had that attitude about him and which made me think I'm like, okay, this is the perfect guy to climb with. So, you know, having that trust in, in, in your partners is absolutely crucial for sure. And just going, okay, there's no, there's no pressure. We don't have to go up. And um, so with that, we just took it step-by-step step, camp by camp and made our way up the, up the mountain and had a great successful summit. No incidents. So that's awesome. Yeah. How long did it take you? It was 17 days, which is actually pretty fast. That is, yeah. We had we had to get, we had this narrow weather window where we knew there was a big storm coming in within a couple of days. So we wanted to take the summit, get down and get out before this snowstorm like locked in and we could have been stuck for another week or so. So we just went for it and yeah, it's great. Got it. So awesome. my first foray into <clears throat> Alaska was going to Denali. I used to apply for the... Uh, filming permits to go into the park, which they don't really do anymore. Well, they may do some filming permits, but not the photo permits, which were such a big thing. And I don't even know if you heard about those, but the first time you go anywhere, you're just like a sponge for information, right? So that first year I can remember buying all the little tour books you get at the visitor center and reading every brochure and you stop and read every sign because you want to know. One of the things that stuck with me for all these years, because this is back in the 90s, is uh, there was a group of guys that climbed an alley from Wonder Lake yeah. in one day. What? Whoa. Yeah. And they hauled a pole with them because they had to prove that they had got to the top. So they were like, well, the only way we're going to prove it is we got to stick something up there that you could see from Fairbanks with a telescope is what they were oh, thinking. Yeah. And they actually did it in one day. The story goes is they did it in one day on a route that no longer exists because of an earthquake. Mm. So that route has been changed forever and is not possible, but they actually did it. And these guys are doing, I can't remember the date when they did it. It was very early on. So, you know, they're just wearing wool and 
carrying knapsacks with a few snacks in it. You know, it's like today you look at these expeditions and these guys are like, well, you know, you're all decked out and you got all the best gear in the planet and you're just like, but then here's these guys so many years ago, they're just like, oh, let's just try this and give it a shot. Now, the biggest problem with the whole deal was, I think they called them the sourdough boys, but I'm not sure. Um, the thing that happened was there's two summits. And one is just like a few hundred feet taller. And they actually put the pole on the wrong, the spruce pole that they carried up got put on the wrong summit. So they didn't even get the credit for being at the tippy top, but they did it in a day, which is kind of cool. That's outrageous. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Okay. So I found it. Okay. It was February of 1910. They did it to settle a bet. Apparently they're from Fairbanks. They hauled a 14 foot flagpole to the top. Yeah. Insane. Crazy. Isn't that nuts? And yeah, yeah. it's called the Sourdough Expedition. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard of that. That's amazing. That's I know. Hilarious. And then to do it from Wonder Lake. So I don't know if you've ever been to Wonder Lake, but I believe, and this is, I'm like pulling from the archives, and there's a lot of cobwebs up here, but I think it's 30 miles from Wonder Lake to actually get to the base of the mountain. So they had, I think, but can you imagine just doing all that? What what month was that, Brandon? Did February. February. What? <laughs> How's that possible? It's like going as a twenty-four hour darkness, basically at that yeah, time. Insane. Yeah, they must have been hiking in the dark. That's nuts. Yeah. yeah. All right. Enough of that. I just thought all that right. was an interesting story. <laughs> on that expedition, did you shoot stills and video? Was that kind of your first foray into video, or did you just shoot stills? Just stills. Yeah, I just shot stills. Um, I went with. Uh, but I have like a Canon 70D, I believe. And I had just like a little 24 mil pancake lens, just kept it super light. I had a pocket full of batteries just to keep them warm. I had no way of charging anything out there. So I was very selective on what I, what I shot. And I had no, like no idea about shooting videos. I, I did take a couple of videos and I look back on them. They're pretty cringeworthy of just me, just pretty handheld shaky stuff that wasn't really usable for much. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I just shot stills and, um, yeah. And I think on one of your videos, well, I don't think on one of your videos, you actually refer to the, when you started switching over into video and you're like looking at some of your wildlife footage and you're like, uh, this is not going to cut the mustard. I'm going to have to up my game. And, and that, what year was that when you actually made that switch over to video and actually really focusing on wildlife? Yeah, so I'd already been working in the natural history world, um, primarily as a camera assistant. Um, and But still, I didn't really think that, again, was really going to be a career. Like, I just thought it was like a kind of a fun, cool little thing I could do and didn't really understand too much about the, the industry. Um, and I had my heart set on stills. I really like shooting stills. Um, but yeah, the writing was on the wall that like being a stills photographer in this in this, you know, world of being action sports or wildlife. I mean, there's not a lot of money to be made in that world anymore. It's, it's incredibly competitive. And, you know, there's, a, you know, the top, you know, 1% could probably do well, um, shooting stills in that world. But, um, yeah, just understanding that, um, videos where it's at is like, I needed to make that transition to just started shooting videos. Um, so I did, I won a photography, uh, competition and I ended up winning a, a up to, I went up to Bella Coola and I got a free 
two-day tour up in Villa Coola to film the oh, photograph cool. um, grizzly bears. A very commercialized kind of place and they have very strict you know guidelines on where you can go it's all run by the first nation up there and um i got in front of bears pretty regularly and i'm like just gonna say all right i'm just gonna shoot video on this one and i had this cheap little flimsy tripod and um like a 200 mil zoom or 7200 zoom and just try to shoot these videos and it was absolutely atrocious like <laughs> i never really appreciated the craft of like creating great videos until I got home and looked at my footage after and said, this is all unusable garbage. Like I, I can't do anything with this. And so from there, I just started realizing I need to invest in some proper equipment and, you know, up my game, um, getting a tripod being probably arguably maybe the number one thing that I overlooked having a solid head was absolutely crucial. Um, yeah, cause if you're doing that long lens work. You really need to have stability and be able to track your animals. Um, unless you're just going to hit record and keep your hands off it and lock it off and let autofocus do all the work, then you're going to have a hard time kind of panning and tracking and following your subjects. So, yeah, so I learned a lesson there. And so I did up, start to upgrade equipment from there. Um, and I believe, yeah, my first like crack at shooting an actual story of my own was just filming Blue Heron at a local pond not too far away from where mm -hmm. I live. And, um, I just go to, it was actually during COVID and you couldn't, you couldn't do anything. So, mm -hmm. um, but I could go to this park that was like completely secluded. I just go to the beach every day. I grab myself a beer at sunset and sit on the beach <laughs> and have a beer and have my little camera set up and my tripod and just film blue heron every day. It was nothing else to do. So I just did that. And little did I know at that time, but that blue heron footage has paid off so much over the years and it's still paying off. Like from, from 2020, like I get asked all the time, like I'm apparently in the, the blue heron expert now because I <laughs> yeah. sold that footage. Like, you wouldn't believe how much I've made off that footage. That's, awesome, that that's so funny. Yeah, huh? crazy. So that's like my, usually my suggestion to really anybody getting started out in shooting wildlife is just go find a subject that you can have easy access to, like I did with the heron. And it doesn't matter what it is. All animals have their own little story and just try to figure out what are they doing? Understand their behavior get out there and just day in, day out, follow their rhythm, follow their pattern, and just try to find, find and craft yourself a little story. And I think there's a lot to learn with that. So, um, so tell me what was the camera that you used to shoot that footage with? That uh, it was a mixture between a GH five and a Panasonic S one. So that was again, just shooting on mirrorless cameras and, and still like me, my tripod wasn't really the greatest thing. It was like a Manfrotto, uh, nitro tech, um, head. So it, you know, it, it had more stability. It had a ball head on it. It had, um, you know, <laughs> you know, I can actually properly adjust it and actually pan and track and tilt and actually could like support the weight of the camera that I built out. So I had like an Atomos Ninja recorder on top of that and, um, try to record like ProRes. Um, so I could have those like nice files to play with, um, and have pre-record as well. So that was another one that uh, you can do with those cameras. It's like a little hack you can do um, is we have like an Atomos Ninja recorder. They actually have like a two second buffer on there. So you can actually have a bit of pre-record pretty much with any camera. So that's like uh, something I learned I could do with that. So there you go, audience people. He shot that on with like a DSLR. GH5, he said. The footage yeah. is still paying off. So I, it, we talk about it all the time. I, I don't think the equipment really matters these days. All these cameras are really good, right? Bruh. It just, you've got to get the content. You just got to spend the time out there. 
Yeah, and what's crazy about this, like, I can't talk about who it's for, but, like, I'm in negotiations right now for a big Netflix series, and um, they're so, like, it's obviously not a Netflix-approved camera, but they are in a bind, and they needed they needed shots to cover this story, and, like, there's always, like, this allowance on what they can actually use in their series, so they have, like, maybe a 10% or 12% budget where they can use non-Netflix-approved uh, equipment, so um, if you've got a good story, you've got good shots that can, like, help you know, progress their stories if they need, if they have like a shortfall in their, their content, then yeah, they'll use whatever they can. Um, yeah. How you guys, I'm like coming during the conversation. So just jump in and just, if you could, you could throw an orange at me and hit me on the head, but oh, whatever, good. just throw raise your hand or whatever. Um, how did you market that footage and how are people finding it? Is just because word of mouth or do you have it on a site somewhere or, is that uh, proprietary information that you don't want to share? No. Um, how did they? Yeah, I mean, when now that I've been to the natural history game, like shooting, you know, at this level for as long, you know, uh, you know, for as long as I have, um, the industry is actually really small. It's a very, very tight knit group, as you probably know. Um, and so when people are just asking questions, it, if, yeah, you could. It just kind of, it's word of mouth really more than anything. Uh, I'm not actively trying to sell it. Um, I do publish stuff on YouTube and, and I've asked, I've, I've been asked for footage um, off of YouTube before as well. So I just like, we'll shoot kind of on spec some certain things. Like uh, I have a black bear story that I put out there. It's more of a behind the scenes of me on a black bear shoot. And um, because of that, like I've been able to use that content and push it out to some organizations to say, hey, like I've got this footage um, available, um, and trying to, trying to, uh, you know, sell my on spec kind of shoots. So it's like another strategy that I'm using to monetize working in this industry. So you, you're talking about this as like 2020, but I look on your, you know, the IMDB and you've got credits on film and it looks like maybe linked to your electrical background. Could you maybe like quickly get us up to where you're, how you got into that world or? What was that drive? Yeah, obviously, I mean, when you'd make this jump to becoming like a photographer, when you leave one job and just, and you don't have any pay, anybody actually paying you money to do this and you decide I'm going to quit and become a photographer with no real revenue. It's, um, yeah, it's not going <laughs> to, it's not going to go very well unless you're really lucky. Um, and, um, I, my previous job was actually a, like a generator service technician. So I'd work mm -hmm. on these big massive generator systems and, Part of my job would uh, to be go to if, if like some big movies came to Vancouver and they needed like like a really large amount of power, um, they would call um, our company and rent generators from us. And I ended up being the movie set guy. So I'd go to all these movie sets and like wire up all these generators and supply power for these mega, mega shows like Planet of the Apes or Salutrian or um, Pirates of the Caribbean. They did, they did some shooting up here. So I got to work on these like really, really big budget shows. But I was just a generator operator and just would mm -hmm. wire up the power supply but then i got to talk to with the with a lot of the uh film crew that worked there and they're all really cool guys and mm -hmm. really interesting uh, guys and girls and um i thought that that could maybe be an avenue where i can supplement my income while i try to build up my portfolio as a photographer filmmaker so yeah i ended up joining the the um iatsi union here in vancouver and uh, they were the calls were coming pretty much right away. Like the industry at that time was incredibly busy. Like they were overwhelmingly busy. So I was able to pick up jobs working up working as a generator operator and like a lamp operator. So I just could work on these big 
um, you know, Hollywood-ish. Vancouver is uh, the Hollywood, uh, North, they call it North Hollywood. So, um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so I work on these big shows, working as a lamp operator and just like learned so much working on those projects actually. So I'd be the lamp operator, the generator operator, hanging out at the director's monitor and just kind of peeking over <laughs> his shoulders and seeing what they're doing. They'd look at me like, who's this guy? And I'm like right. on the generator operator, like what are you doing here? They're so confused by that. But I, I don't know, I just put myself in there. And then because I, you just learn so much. If you're curious and you ask questions, I mean, you're not annoying. You can't be like, hey, well, you, know, you gotta stay out of the way for sure. But when the right time comes up, you know, these guys are more than uh, happy to, Know, share their information um so yeah so i learned a lot doing that kind of stuff so. that is awesome story because it's it's that is it too you when you start in this biz and if you don't have any insight it's so hard to figure it out and it takes so much time but if you interject yourself like you did i mean if you're a sponge you can pick up you don't have to talk to anybody you can just watch how stuff goes on and say wow okay that gives me a little the next time I actually have a real conversation with someone, I won't sound like an idiot. I can actually throw in at least a couple of things that make me sound like I know what I'm talking about. That's pretty cool. I think that that's a big thing for most really. I, 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 people need to listen more. Just sit back, be quiet. Let, like, you know, people with decades of, of experience and just, just listen to what they have to say. And, um, you know, there's you learn something from anybody. Like, I think, you know, it's like working on these movie sets, for example. You'll, you, you don't even know who you're chatting with, like. I can't say who it was, but there was this young PA and his mom was actually incredibly famous. And um, he was like 18 or 17, it was his first job out of high school and he's working as a production assistant. You know, he's taking out the garbage and just sweeping floors and stuff like that. And I had no idea who this, who this kid was and just having like these conversations with this guy. And then I found out who his, who his parents were and who his mom was specifically. And um, to start chatting with him more and like that kid has got his head screwed on tight and he's going to go far in this industry for sure he just needs to get some experience in this industry and he's going to do really really well i'm sure of it so yeah you never know who you're kind of working around when you're on these kind of sets so i think you can learn a lot from a lot of people out there so yeah i was curious if that was like if you're always passionate about it and that was kind of like your way in but that the company kind of got you there that's really really neat yeah. i just recently left my job i've been working as a pharmacist for the last like 16 years in this past fall, I finally just decided to pursue this route. So I'm kind of in that phase of figuring things out and looking for all the open doors and uh, just exploring and skill building and all the connections there. Things are are definitely important. So yeah, hearing it echoed back from you, you know, it's yeah, Eric. Man, I story. gotta say, like one thing for sure, and this is like I, I right now more than ever, I am so grateful that I have what I'm calling a bridge job because the industry current state of affairs of the industry, mm -hmm. it's very, very slow. Yeah. And you guys are all nodding your heads. You all yep. agree. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very, very slow. And um, having conversations with other cinematographers and uh, directors, producers, and everybody's in the same boat right now. And everybody's going, what am I going to do? And uh, my advice to anybody is get, have a, maybe some kind of plan B of some sort, you know, just another skill set to build up. So like for people who are, coming into the game, maybe later in life, like I did, like, I mean, I was 32 when I started. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm still pretty young. Um, but I, I just so grateful that I had like a bit of a backup plan just in case if, you know, shit hit the fan and it did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so then I have something to fall back on until the, the industry uh, catches its feet and gets, gets uh, moving again, which it will for sure. Like it's just a matter of time before, um, everything picks back up for sure. So. 
What's interesting is Brandon's in the same boat too. So you should give him your background, Brandon, just because, but you're the one that's kind of got that. You've had a year now to figure out the, the backup right. plan, like, like James is talking about. Yeah. I was corporate for 18 years and things happened that just gave me a chance to go out and do what I wanted. And so I was the guy that was just like, I can't stand in a box anymore and deal with this. I've done this for too long. And so I'm out of here. I have a camera and I'm going to go film stuff and I'm going to, I'm going to be a freelancer. Right. And I was going to grab the world and put it in my pocket. <laughs> and then that like next day you're like, what have I done? And it's like that moment of like, Oh my gosh, I, I, I need to go find a job or something, but you're like, just stick with it. And so I'm, I'm more on the commercial side. Um, mine's more, small brands, large brands, that type of thing versus Hollywood movie sets or natural history or things like that. I love wildlife, which is why I'm here, but mine's all commercial. So, um, yeah, but same thing, like just go grab the world by the horns and turns out that isn't how it works as you said earlier. <laughs> and so you got to figure out other things and you just got to pivot and be adaptable and just be happy to do things. So absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So Michael has been a DP on, I guess, what was the last one, right? It was the mating game? Nah, oh, no. no, it was uh, Big Beast. Yeah. So There's so many things. I mean, it's just like yeah. you said, you get so many things going on and then it dies. COVID is what screwed up everything, right? It just was so much production stuff during COVID. I think they just overproduced everything and now there's just like this bottleneck and it's going to have, they're going to have to get through all that to then want to go out and start producing more stuff, which, which kind of leads us into YouTube, right? I, my guess when I was talking with these guys about you and I'm like, yeah, we should get James on because if he's interested, it'd be great to talk to him. There's no better time than right now to be working on YouTube. Who knows if you're ever going to get Casey Neistat famous or, or Morton Hilmer or any of these people that have somewhat of a following, but Worst case is you're just going to get better at doing what you're trying to do, you know, telling stories. And if you don't have anything else going, why not start YouTube and see what, what comes out of it? Is that what your thought process was? Uh, a thousand percent. Yeah, I know exactly. Because yeah, I mean, it's like with now that it's slow, this is actually giving me time. I'm using this time as value, like as much as I possibly can. And, and trying to stay sharp, stay relevant, work on some skills that I haven't had time to because it's been so busy, actually. In the last six, seven years, that's all I've been doing full time is this natural history thing. And now I've got some time to like take a step back, go, okay, um, I, I need to hone my skills on certain things that I've been neglecting or um, work on some, you know, my own personal story development as well. Like there's so many like stories that I want to like produce as well. And uh, now it's giving me time to start writing pitches and starting to get that stuff together. Cause I, I, I don't like just sitting on the sideline. I like to be active no matter what's going on. And if there, and there's always these different seasons and during the, this off season, whatever it is, I, I just got to stay on my game for sure. Because once it comes back, I'm going to be sharp and ready to go and ready to hit the ground running. Um, yeah. What's your take on like interesting stories are what we talk about a lot, or I guess maybe not on air, but as individuals, it's, you see things like the octopus teacher that came out, right? Which is wildlife based, but it's a very much a human interest story. And I've talked with a couple other DPs that are, you know, legends. And um, 
one of them in particular is like, yeah, you know, I think the industry's moving more towards that as opposed to, I mean, I love watching a planet earth. I love watching these grand, really awesome, just once in a lifetime, like things that happen out in nature. That's cool. But I'm kind of drawn more to this human interest stuff that is part of nature. So it's more through the eyes of somebody that's experiencing it as opposed to just showing this beauty. What do you think as far as that, as far as storytelling? Do you think the industry is going to move more that way? Or do you think it'll they'll always be the planet Earth's and that sort of thing? I agree with you 100% on that. I think that's actually what the industry is uh, craving more than anything is these like, you know, human connections to our planet. In, in one way or another. And these, um, that my octopus teacher, I use that as reference time and time again of like going, okay, they, they really had something special there for sure. And I kind of think that really set the bar of like storytelling and, and like what the future is going to start to look like for the next little while. Like I know, I know from personal conversations that like Netflix is always looking for the next my octopus teacher. Like that's, that's what they want. And with like so many of these natural history series, like these planet Earth or our planet, or I, I, we joke that like the next big series is going to be called Planet Planet. Like they're out of like <laughs> ways of calling planet something. Um, Cause they, and like, even for myself, like I've worked on so many of these shows over the years. I don't even remember what show it was a part of. I'm like, oh yeah, I shot, you know, this Eagle sequence, but I, I forget which program it was a part of. Cause they're all the same, right? Or people try to reference certain sequences from stories. I'm like, I don't even remember what series I was a part of. Cause they're all, you know, they're all, the, they're all the exact same, but like the thing is like, I mean, this is, you know, different storytelling techniques, uh, you know, technology is getting better for sure. So, um, you know, there's different ways of telling stories that way, but I, I feel like there's definitely a, like a lack of like really creative outside the box thinking in this, in this genre. And I think this, the human element kind of thing is like, what's going to, I don't know, come out on top for the next little while for sure. Yeah. Okay, so Again, um, yeah. oh, I was Go gonna ahead. say, so there was, there's one on your YouTube that it was the thing that you're most scared of, and I think yeah. all of us can appreciate this, but yeah. like, just walk us through that, right? And so, um, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Where like it's not gonna be okay. So like, just walk us through that, and like why? Because I think I feel the same way, and it's just terrifying. And yeah, how you, how you got over it, and where you're at now. Uh, how to get over it. I'm not like even like this conversation right here. I was like really prepping myself, pumping myself up to do this because I'm not used to like having the camera turned around looking at me. It's usually I like to, you know, point the camera at things and make yeah, nice but... pictures. And I got to try to make myself look and sound good. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I just it's, it's a very unnatural kind of feeling for myself. So um, but getting over it. Um, yeah, I guess. Okay. So going back to like your, when you brought this, uh, this question up is like, what am I scared of the most? And it's actually just, you know, turn the camera on myself, hitting record and like hitting publish for the world to see. And, um, and a lot of it is like, you know, in the, in, in the industry, like I work with some incredible cinematographers and I work with, you know, amazing DPs and directors and producers around the world. And, and now I'm stepping back and going, I'm not stepping back, but I'm like reverting to YouTube and a lot of people think, yeah, I, I even had the idea that like YouTube is like kind of like a lesser art form and it's not like as prestigious as working for, you know, Netflix or Apple TV or Disney plus and getting these big contracts that are, you know, like, you know, you get this like badge of honor getting to work for these companies. But, um, my reason for doing this is that I, there's just so many gatekeepers in this industry that you've got to like really put your, yeah, just 
yeah, it's just getting in that industry is like already challenging enough. And then when it's really, really slow and there's not much going on, it's like, how do you, how do you stand out in that, in that market, I guess. And so YouTube, like kind of just takes all the gatekeepers away. You can create whatever you want, whenever you want and just put it out there. Um, but also you have to put yourself out there. So that was kind of like the, the more terrifying thing for myself to, to do and, and to try to get over. So, but here I am. <laughs> Yeah, that's terrifying, isn't it? It's like, what do I say? And the, like the excitement level, you always have to be more excited. And I don't know, it's a it's a whole back and forth. Okay, so in that same video, you had all the different things that you've been in front of. And so you've seen polar bears, you and actually, we haven't talked about it, what you won the Emmy for, and what show that is and where you can find it. So maybe give us a glance of that. And then just talk about some of your favorite species. And then maybe if you can remember all this, uh, right. Cause I'm just throwing questions at you. Uh, like what, what's next? Like what is your next species that you want to go for? So, right. Yeah. So we won the, well, we won, ended up winning four Emmys, um, overall for a series called Island of the Sea Wolves on Netflix. Um, it's a three part series. Have you guys all seen it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So it's a three part series on Netflix featuring some of the iconic wildlife of Vancouver Island. Um, we shot that over like a nine month period, which is actually a very short turnaround. Oh, yeah. Normally if you're doing a seasonal kind of story, you would have, you know, at least two, two years at it to, to, you know, cracks at every season to, to get the story. But we ended up by getting, I don't know if it was lucky or they, they threw a lot of camera days at it. They threw, I think 600 camera days oh, okay. uh, for, that, for that series. So there was, it, it was just camera crews out nonstop for nine months. There was no breaks. Mm -hmm. Everybody's just, basically doing gear exchanges in the field and saying, all right, good luck and um, <laughs> continue on with the story. Right. So, so yeah, I don't know. We ended up winning uh, four Emmys, one for, um, for sound mixing, for editing, uh, cinematography and for writing. And, uh, we were nominated for seven. We ended up getting four and, uh, yeah, we're super pumped so that, cool. that that's what we got uh, walked away with. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And I guess to your question about, um, you know, what's, what am I looking forward to shooting in the future and my favorite species? Like I, I have like, a, I, I love wolves. Wolves are probably my favorite animal. I always support my buddy's company, SeaWorld, uh, Sea Forth Expeditions, yeah. uh, good mine, Tom. And um, yeah, so just, just dialing in on, on more wolf stories is something that I'm really passionate about doing. Um, also, I'm always trying to crack that cougar code. <laughs> We're trying to yeah. try to get cougar story. That's the dream. I think uh, everybody, every <laughs> natural history, you know, guys likes elusive animals, which I do. Um, that's probably the most elusive animal to like get a decent story out of. So, um, especially in North America. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've got some ideas on how I could pull that <laughs> off, but it's still like <laughs> incredibly challenging. So, yeah. um, still trying to well, and it usually out. it's just like it's hard enough to get one shot sometimes, let alone a whole story. So yeah best of luck with that one i hope you get yeah. it yeah we had I'm casey not. anderson on do you know him he's the tracker and he has more interactions with cats than anyone that i've ever heard of i, I mean assume outside of like the patagonia area but like in north america like casey's the man and he just has yeah. all these interactions it's insane yeah that's amazing yeah. well and that's why I, are you familiar with ben masters uh, I know of them. Yeah. Yeah. And the, him and Casey kind of got together and it seems like both of those guys have pretty good luck with cats. Hmm. 
Well, yeah, because Ben got the uh, the ocelot, ocelot, and they had yeah. that. They had so much footage. He said that they were doing top down footage, and they found. He said they had more footage than they could use for, of that ocelot, which is insane. Yeah, they made a whole right. other PBS series about it. <laughs> so cool. Well, in that, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what your role, were, were you mainly just running long lens? There's a lot of drone stuff in that. There's some underwater in the Isle of Sea Wolves, and then there obviously some camera trapping around the wolf dens, I assume, and there's some black bear stuff. I don't know what maybe parts of that film you could talk about that you were involved in, because I might have some questions about specific shots or things. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, my, my, my primary story was the Vancouver Island Marmot. So I shot about, okay. I'd say 95% of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a few other operators that came in and, and, and picked up some days uh, working with me out in the field on that one. But that was like majority of my story was that one. And then I worked, uh, what was it? I think it ended up being uh, eight week, eight or nine weeks mm-hmm. working on wolf story. So I spent a lot of time working mm-hmm. on the wolf story. Okay. Worked a lot on the uh, the Herring Spawn. Worked on a bunch of stuff for Eagles, particularly the fall episode, and uh, working on that that nest um, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, that nest sequence was uh, a lot of operators worked on that nest for sure. We all you know everybody had a crack at that spot, so <laughs> it was a it was a good one. So um, yeah, those are my per- and we, you know I worked on some stories that didn't make the cut. Um, it's mm-hmm. kind of wild. Like I, I worked on this uh, big elk story. Uh, the Roosevelt elk and uh, they ended up not using much of it. I think they used two shots. It was a great story, but I think they just, they, and they, they ended up scrapping a whole bunch of stories and just like deciding to stay way more focused on like a couple of really key stories and getting more in depth with these, these animals opposed to just throwing a whole bunch of stories at it. So yeah. I, I actually really, you know, applaud them for, for taking that action and just uh, taking the courage to say, all right, let's just drop, you know, all those, <laughs> stories and just stick to these key stories so yeah yeah well you never really know what's going to rise to the top too right because you want to just try to get as much as you can because there might be that awesome elk story but unless you're out there to figure it out so you might as well throw some if you have that many camera days why not you know just because who knows you might find that gold that is just amazing or you might strike out on other things too i mean like wolves are incredibly hard to film um as you probably know and um so when you look at a story like that which definitely had the most camera days were thrown at walls for sure um but there's like really good like i've been back to these spots time and time again and i've struck out so many times going back there and and uh, even on that series on it in itself like i had multiple shoots where i came back pretty much empty-handed so um yeah it's really tough so you never know you might get you know skunked and so at least he has some backup stories to work on and uh yeah they hired me to do a shoot for uh planet earth down in arizona and we were supposed to get this specific thing they gave us two and a half weeks we didn't get it It, you know i think to your point it's like you just you know you got the big budget they're sending you to the perfect place and it doesn't happen and you talk to the producers and they're like, oh, well, we'll try it again next year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you guys epic, epic failures. Like we had helicopters and a Cessna and we were like, you know, and I've been on like crazy shoots and literally came home with nothing. And you're mm-hmm. like, wow, that's, that's a waste. That's unfortunate. Yeah. 
but can you still pay me? Because I was out there the whole time. That's <laughs> hey, exactly. Like, yeah, as long yeah. as I'm getting paid. Oh, we don't work on piece, like piecework. <laughs> we don't work on piecework. Oh, right, right. <laughs> be way higher. So do you, um, gear-wise, do you own your own cameras now? I mean, I feel like everybody does. And once you get into it, and, you know, when, when I go out on a big shoot, they're usually just giving me the camera. Occasionally, they'll rent my stuff. But most of the time, they're giving you the camera and the lens and the tripods and everything like that. But for your own stuff, what are you using? And I think I saw in one, or I know I saw in one of your videos, you got the poor man's CN20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like just like you said, like a majority of our shoots, uh, they, they supply us with the equipment. So I've been, I, I've neglected to buy like a really, like a, a CN20, for example, like, you know, I'm not gonna throw you know, 80 grand on a, on a lens. Um, and, um, but yeah, I got the poor man's uh, CN20, this, which is the 60 to 600, uh, which is a great lens. Actually, I really, I actually quite often pr prefer it. Um, you know, there are some drawbacks to that lens, but, uh, what it is, is just, you know, you've got that big focal range of 60 to 600, you could stick a doubler on there and, you know, it's pretty versatile. It's lighter weight, um, significantly less expensive. Um, so yeah, I, I shoot on that quite often and it cover, it covers a full frame sensor as well. So. The CN20 only covers Super 35, so you always got to crop in on um, your sensor if you're shooting in you know, a large format, like on the Raptor or something like that. Um, so, um, yeah, so I shoot actually on a Z Cam quite often um, when I'm shooting personal stuff. And I think a Z Cam is definitely one of the most underrated cameras out there for just shooting your own personal, like, fun, like, not even personal fun stuff. Like, I mean, I've, I've sold Z Cam footage to big productions. And uh, we use EdCam like quite often um, if we're trying to do like remote camera work or um, just as like a second camera or a, or a C camera. We'll always have a EdCam kind of nearby. And so, yeah, I, I have my personally own a EdCam and um, it's around here somewhere. So, yeah, I shoot with that quite a bit. So I'm just doing personal, personal projects. Um, and then, like you said earlier, the tripod is the requirements for the 60 to 600 aren't near what's required for the CN20. So it's a lot. That's my big thing is like, if I want to go hiking 10 miles to go do whatever we're going to do, I can do it with the 60 to 600 and the tripod, not this one, but the tripod that I need to actually pull it off. But you pack a CN20 with the camera and the O'Connor head that you need to actually run that thing. My, I got like a mile max. You know, I'll tell people all the time, I'm like, give me an assistant to carry the tripod and I'll go as far as you want me to go. But if I have to carry all this stuff by myself, forget it. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I'll do it, but it's going to take me. You need to add some more camera days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're up, I was, like for an example, like I mean, I was on a shoot uh, filming wolves and working near this whale carcass. But to get to the whale carcass was, I like minimum an hour like hike one way. Oh man! And for to haul your equipment back and forth is it's almost impossible. It's on. It's just backbreaking labor, and it's it's not an easy trails. You're hiking bushwhacking, like it is. It is tough going and haul all that equipment with a CN20, which I ended up just putting up a, a tent out in the forest and hit it and threw like you know you know hundred thousand dollar kit with a you know twenty five thousand dollar <laughs> tripod and just threw it in this tent and had to walk back to camp every day uh, without the equipment and just you know covered it up with rain rain gear. And uh, hope for the best and just, you know, bring batteries back and just have to haul batteries back and forth only. So, yeah, that stuff's super, super heavy. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I had the same exact thing happen. We were in the Arctic and, you know, you don't want to carry it back. 
back and forth every day. I'd just leave everything in the blind that we were shooting at, you know, make sure there's no food in it because there was the occasional grizzly or wolverine that would come moving through. So you had to make sure that nothing smelled too much like food, but but it it is going to have a smell to it, right? So you're like, well, I hope a bear doesn't decide to destroy this blind and, and get in there. Unfortunately, we didn't have it, but yeah, you just want to, you know, you want to be as productive as possible. And so you don't want to be packing gear in and out, in and out, and just wearing yourself out that way because you want to be able to, to perform when it's time to perform. So, yeah, absolutely. Actually, and, and just talking about gear and, and hauling equipment, um, but w- one thing I did do on that series, which ended up paying off like really, really well, and this is a series that hasn't been released yet, uh, Filming Wolves, and I um, would bring uh, my, I had a, uh, my Canon R5 and a 100 to 500 mil lens. And I had that just with me, just in case while I'm hiking, I r- come across the pack and that they're, they're nearby and my camera's out in the blind and I can't get to it. Right. And now I'm, you know, I can't even, I'm, you know, the wolves are in between me and my camera. So what do I do? And that paid off really well. One time I did yeah. just, yeah, I, I, like this hike. And I, all of a sudden I just, I actually, so what was happening is I was hiking out and I was just going to film the sunrise with a drone. I was doing some drone shots and just flying around getting this beautiful sunrise. And then as I'm doing the shot, I'm like, have my head down. I look up and there's a wolf like 20 feet in front of me just staring at me and like with his head cocked. I'm like, I hadn't seen a wolf in like a week and I'm like just staring right at me. I'm like, no way. Crazy. So I zip the drone back and I come back and all of a sudden I'm the whole pack is like 10, 11 wolves on this beach with me and I'm completely alone and they're just howling, going nuts. And Amazing. I'm like, no way that's happening. So I did a couple quick drone shots and then I just put that Canon R5 together and just had it up and running within a few seconds and was able to get some more shots of that too. So awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Super story. With that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should talk a little bit about that. I mean, I don't know that it really works in this part of the conversation, but so many people are scared of wolves, right? And, or they are just programmed, pre-programmed through just life and society that all oh, wolves are going to get you. But I've been in that situation too, where you've just got wolves all around you and I've never really felt threatened at all. What was it like for you, for you being out there with those wolves? That, did they pay any attention to you? I mean, obviously they know you're there, right? There's no hiding. They just know. But they don't look at you as like a food source. They look at you as just like, oh, well, there's something weird going on, but it doesn't look like it's going to give me any problems or present any danger. So what is it like working around those wolves up there? Um, In multiple cases, um, whether it's on the coast or it's in northern Canada or um, up in the Arctic, just all my experiences with wolves have always been positive. Like they are very curious animals and, you know, you get this, you know, the whole myth of the big bad wolf and that they're going to, they're out there, they're out there, you know, ravenous killers and they're going to get you. That is not the case at all. There is so like, like not many cases of like human wolf interactions where it led to like any injuries or, or death. Um, I I did some uh, statistics I looked up and it was like kind of something crazy. Like over the hundred years, it's been like 10 deaths due to wolves, like a hundred years or more. It's like, yeah, pretty rare. I mean, I'm sure people get killed by cows way more often or killed by deer way more often than wolves. Like crazy. Or moose. Or moose or like, yeah, yeah. I mean, household dogs, actually. There's a, there's like 500,000 inc- right. incidences a year due to household dogs, you know, like, uh, you know, 
So right. yeah, yeah, they, they they are pretty curious, and they will come up to you, and you get you know a pack of wolves, and they're all howling and barking and kind of going crazy around you. So it can feel intimidating, but I don't know when you spend enough time with them, you realize that they're just having fun or something. I'm not really sure. You know, they're just <laughs> yeah. like communicating with each other. They're just um, you know aware. Maybe they're alarming. They're just um, excited for some reason that they saw me, and then yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And what an experience, right? Because there is nothing like that when you're actually out there. And everybody always talks about being in nature and having these feelings or having these emotions or having this just once in a lifetime experience. It's, it is hard to even put into words when you're, you know, 50 yards away from a wolf that's howling and then more wolves start howling. And it's just like the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you're just like, this is like, you can't even, I just can't even relay that experience feeling that you have yeah yeah i know it's it's a, it's a pretty amazing experience i wish more people could like be in a scenario like that where they can really start to understand the, these what these animals a little bit better and to realize that they're not actually to be you know frightened you know scared of um uh i think more people need to be in yeah have experiences like that so switching gears a little bit, and again, guys, if you guys got a question, just tell me to shut up. But um, as far as your YouTube channel, starting it out, and I know that a lot of your stuff is like you'll do a little mini story on the bears that you referenced or just a lot of the different things that you'll create your own story, write your own story, have all this sequence of shots, put it together, put it out there, and that's like a marketing tool, right? But in one of your videos, you're like, I kind of want to share my experiences, but I also want to teach some of this wildlife cinematography. So is that where you're going now? Is that kind of the path? Cause you talked about some of the videos that you have planned in your future. Uh, do you want to talk about that or do you have, can you give us some insight as to what you're thinking? Yeah, it's definitely something I'm still trying to explore. Like when I started doing this YouTube thing, I, I, I thought I could just like make cool, like wildlife videos and just put them out there and they, you know, go viral instantly. I'd be rich beyond my wildest dreams, but that is definitely not happened. And so, and then I just through through a lot of obsessive studying about YouTube and, and what you have to do to succeed on this platform, uh, realizing that more than likely I'm going to have to turn the camera on to myself. And I think, you know, it's one of those platforms that people go to YouTube to learn something. Um, you know, you, you can entertain them and they can learn something about these animals and stuff like that. But I think I think it's a good platform for people who are um, just wanting to get educated. Um, in a different way. And I feel like with my, my experiences, I've just, I've had great conversations over the years with a lot of uh, photographers and other filmmakers and like, how'd you get in the industry? Like, how'd you get started? Um, what camera equipment do you use? And I'm like, ah, oh, I could add a lot of value. I feel like to, 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 a you know, a larger audience for sure. And why don't I just do it this way instead of just like DMS on Instagram and just these like kind of meaningless conversations. And I could just go more in depth uh, about these processes and, and my approach to, to filming wildlife. And, and I think that like the industry needs more people out there, like filming wildlife. I think these stories need to get out there. So like, you know, my experience with the wolves and, you know, me talking about how like, you know, the wolves aren't these like animals to be scared of. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think it just helps. It's like wildlife stories, like they, they play a crucial role in conservation and protection of our planet. And I think if more people like lean, in, lean more into video and share these stories about these wild places that people would actually care more about these places and want to protect them more. So, um, 
yeah, I feel like video is definitely a better way to do that than stills. Um, you know, they can tell a great story with stills and stuff like that, but yeah, just trying to get these actual behaviors and teaching people how to do it properly, um, I think is a benefit to, to our planet, I think. So, mm -hmm. so you mentioned you love stills. Do you take any pictures still, or is it all uh, just video? Very rare, very, very yeah. rarely. Um, yeah, my, my Canon R5 and my, my, Long lens are more of a paperweight these days. I don't really use it that often. I'll, I'll use, I'll use, I'll take it out for recce stuff more. Um, yeah, yeah quite often. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I still love shooting stills, but yeah, it's, it's pretty rare that I shoot them anymore. So I don't like, I have like, like, I don't know about you guys, but I have just so many stills just sitting on hard drives and I just don't do anything with them. <laughs> like, they're just, like, I'm not going to like start selling prints or something like that or try to, you know, make money doing that. It's just more for my enjoyment to take these photos. So, right. Yeah. The hard thing too is we've thought about that. It's like, yeah, we got all kinds of cool stills, and we we actually have a series that to as a way to try to use some of our stills. It's like let's do a thing called the story behind the image, right. and because there's some amazing stories that you know you got this particular image. It's like, well, what? How did you get it? What led up to it? And then you try to you know, well, maybe we could sell some prints of that. But then we're talking to photographers. So what photographer is not going to want to put their own stuff up on the wall as opposed to, oh, I'm going to go buy, you know, whatever so I can have, and maybe it would be the case, but I think it's pretty, pretty far stretched to get that to happen. You need an audience that just appreciates wildlife that lit sits in a cubicle and they're the ones that are going to buy the images. Right. And that's not the people we're talking to, no, but that, yeah, yeah. Totally. And I think with the YouTube stuff, what for me it is, is, yeah, you're going to go out and film some wolves and you want to teach people how to film the wolves, right? And and do it responsibly and do it ethically and all that jazz. But I think the bigger story and what people get totally jazzed about is like, how'd you get there? What'd you eat? Did you sleep in a in a paper, you know, rucksack or what's, what's the adventure of getting there? You know, it's like there's yeah, so yeah. much stuff and I love that stuff. When I watch YouTube, that's kind of like, where I'll go and I watch a lot of random stuff and I always want to know like, well, okay, so you went to Iceland or you went to Argentina and, but how'd you do it? How'd you get there? So is that part of the plan too? Because that is so much part of the story where people are like, I want to know how James got to this spot. Yeah, Not I, that I, you have to give the spot away, you know, but, but never how'd you get to it. it? Yeah, no, I, I, that's, um, so that Blackberry, that Blackberry story, if you get a chance to watch that one, that's kind of more the, the direction I'd like to go. But, but I think with that, it would be like all, all of that. And also some type of educational stuff where like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of teaching my field practices and like, you know, yeah, exactly. How, how to get there, take a boat, take a plane or float plane or this driver, or was it a local shoot or, or whatever. Right. So I think, yeah, I'd like to add that component in there for sure. Um, right now I'm just doing stuff here in my, in my house, in my studio, because the weather is absolutely been terrible, like relentlessly horrible. So I'm kind of confined to working um, within this space right now, but yeah, no, it's going to be a majority of it. Um, and it's just my, my, you know, happy place just being out in the field, doing it out, you know, doing my content out there as well. So um, yeah, just setting up, you know, a lot of projects that um, I feel like I could, yeah, like I mean, I, I I've worked on some, I built some like you know hides in preparation um, for the future for future projects that I've already built hides that are already out there. So I'll, I'll do some content uh, working from hides and and so I'm out there actually doing the work um, and and recording myself along the way as well. So yeah. 
That's awesome. I feel like I got two things, but I feel like we have to have um, a UK glossary because you said recce, and I don't. I guarantee you, nobody's going to know what a recce is. And then a lot oh. of people are like, "What the heck is a hide? What is a hide?" <laughs> so, can you just tell our audience what a recce is and what a hide is? Well, recce is just like a reconnaissance trip where you would go out and scout an area, a scouting mission to see if um, you know there's any potential in, in, in your ideas of, you know, you've got a story idea. So you might as well, instead of hauling all your equipment out there and throwing a lot of resources at the specific, uh, story, you might as well go, you better go put some, um, you know, get your boots on the ground and go have like a little scout and see if it's uh, even possible. Um, and for a hide, yeah, it's just like a, it's a blind or a hide. Um, and it's like a camo tent that will, spend enormous amounts of time sitting and waiting for animals to come by and uh, you try to be discreet and um, just a nice dry space to to uh, set up your camera and hide from the elements and hide and you know try to be um, hidden from the wildlife so that's a big one is uh, you know you want to get some shots you want to get as natural behavior as you possibly can so um, if the animal sees you and is just staring at you, well, that's not a great shot. You don't, nobody wants to see that. That's kind of boring TV. So you want to make sure you're getting the most natural behaviors you possibly can. And the animal without, if the, with the animal not knowing you're actually there, that's when you're going to get the best, best stuff for sure. Okay, so, so everybody's, you, oh, go ahead, Brandon. I was going to just say, when you're uh, doing your YouTube stuff, are you using the R5? Uh, I'm using a Sony FX30. Okay. Yeah. Good old Sony's. Good old Sony's. Yeah, that's actually what I'm recording this on right now. I've got a oh, Sony nice. hooked up to my, to my laptop. As do I. So is that, I'm not familiar with the Sony's. Is that pretty pretty small footprint? That's something you can just throw in your pocket and just whip it out? And It's like my FX3 that I carry. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, it, it's cool. the crop sensor version of the FX3. <laughs> exact same body. Like you could, every cage, yeah. every, everything is built the exact same. It's just a different sensor size. So it's great. It's a f- small footprint. I mean, I'm late. I'm lazier than that. I use the GoPro. <laughs> so if I can't whip out the GoPro, I mean, it's just that I, we did a little video on GoPros not too long ago. And it's, for me, it's, if you're carrying all this weight already, the last thing I want to do is throw in another DSLR and carry more stuff. But if I just have a GoPro and I can just hit record and I know I'm going to get it. Yeah. The quality of the footage is not awesome, but it still tells the story. And I think with YouTube, you don't have to have, everything be beautiful if your wildlife stuff's beautiful that's great that will be that part of that video which is really cool but telling the adventure part of the story i think is fine on just about whatever whether it's a small dslr or a gopro or whatever so yeah at the end of the day the story story's king story rules all it doesn't matter what your camera is you could have your cell phone it doesn't matter get some good clean audio and um and have a great story and then i think anybody could probably win on this platform just you just got to have a great compelling story that people are interested in and and they'll forgive like bad um you know not bad or subpar or whatever you want to call it the um visuals um as long as you have a great story to tell okay so you're you're out in the field you're doing this long documentary right what's the first meal you you eat when you get back to the city oh i actually have a good answer for that there's a there's a restaurant here in vancouver called taco fino and okay. it's super close to my house and it's like fish tacos. And, um, yeah, I, that's like a staple. Awesome. <laughs> and depending on the shoes, so like, but definitely there's like this, um, I, I, uh, you usually it's pretty backbreaking labor, humping gear all over the place. Mm-hmm. And 
So I usually get a massage and then, um, yep. and then, uh, yeah, I go to Taco Fino and I just collapse for a few just, days. Just crush. Just crush. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> that, that's actually my ritual. Like I, I do that pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. With the YouTube stuff. So we put together this team. So Brandon, Eric, and myself, it's like, okay, we can work together because to, it's just a lot of content that you're trying to produce. Right. And it's like spread the, the work around and work together sometimes work individually sometimes are you working on your own or are you do you have a team put together or are you doing all your own edits how does that work for you yeah i'm doing it all by myself right now and i oh, admire geez. you guys on this team because i'm getting my ass kicked it feels like it because like yeah, it is it is um you wear so many hats when you have to put this youtube stuff together i'm just starting to understand now that you know what's ahead and like yeah this is this is going to be a this is going to be a challenge for sure so yeah I, i've worked with um some other people before um and and that's when we we had some creative differences on what it was going to look like what a channel was going to look like and now that it's like turned into what it is evolving into which is like turning the camera around i don't think yeah it's it's, it's kind of like shifted so yeah, I, I still definitely love to like build a team eventually, but uh, I don't really know what that looks like yet because I'm still trying to figure out what this channel is going to look like for myself. So, yeah. Okay, so you're editing, Just, you're doing everything then. Yeah. What are you editing in? <laughs> uh, DaVinci Resolve. Okay, us too. Yeah. And, and like that alone is just like, it does so much. Yeah. And yeah. You it's can't so keep up with everything. I, I constantly am calling Brandon. It's like, how do I go full screen? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, all these dumb things. And then I'm like, oh, I can't just bug him like every day when I have a question. So, but the cool thing is YouTube has every answer that you could possibly want. But it's just the time that's required to, to take the time, go figure it out, then come back and try to apply it. Color. Color correction is like so awesome in DaVinci, but it's an art. It's not like, you know, I would love to have a full time colorist that would color all our footage because I feel like what I do is it's okay, but it's not what the footage could be. Mm. So I admire you for actually embarking on this on, on your own just to try to put out that. Well, I, I, I feel like it's you know, one of those things that, like, now that I've gone through this process and made a few videos now. I got to see like, you know, one, what do I like doing? What am I good at doing? And then going, okay, now that I've done like so many, like worn all the hats that I possibly can wear, then I go, okay, well, what do I really struggle at? What do I need help with? And so that now I can go, all right, like, I mean, my thumbnail designs, I don't, I'm, I'm not great at that. And I'm constantly going all bouncing ideas yeah. off people. And I still trying to figure out that thumbnail game and titling and descriptions and writing all that kind of stuff. So I could find somebody that, would be really interested in building that stuff. That would be amazing. So that's something I'm looking at trying to outsource one way or another. Um, and also like, you know, like I, like, I like scripting. I, I like, I like, I really actually like editing and I like shooting. So it's like, I like doing those things, but in the long run, if I could find an editor for sure, I think editing would be something if I could, if I could take that out of the equation, my editing process, I could, that would just free me up so much more to create more content. And just, you know, because I've got so many lists of ideas of stories that I would like to do, but it's just like, you know, it's a time thing for sure. So editing is that nice check, right? Like you go out in the field, you film something, 
then you get back to the table, you edit it, and you're like, okay, I, I did get it, or oh, I messed it up, or and that's why I like editing. It's just like a good check and balance of I'm still doing a good job filming. Whereas sometimes I feel like if I'm not editing everything all the time, I find myself slipping sometimes on some of the stuff in the field that I'm filming. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. Then you know what shots you, what, you know, on your last shoot, you learn, you go, oh, I forgot to get like that really nice tight shot of the feet or, uh, you know, an exiting frame for just a little bit longer, you know, get that shot where the animal leaves frame and don't cut right now. Give, give Let it breathe for just a couple of seconds and then give it some time. So, you know, you, you learn these little things and when you're in the edit and you're editing your own stuff, you're like, you know, the next time you're in the field, you'll hopefully learn from that and just make sure you don't make that same mistake because yeah. So I noticed uh, you changed the thumbnail on the Emmy uh, video, the YouTube. Yeah. Does that, was that like, okay, well it's not getting views and they might not like that thumbnail. I mean, I find myself second guessing all the time and I'm, I'm with you. It's like, I don't know what people are going to like. And then you see these Mr. Beast videos or Mr. Beast thumbnails or I don't know. There's so many and it's, everybody's giving this dumb look or this like, I'm like a look of like, Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, how does that resonate with people? I don't get it. The formula for thumbnails is like a job in itself. Yeah. I think it's like one thing I'm starting to like think more about is like, who is my target audience? Like who, who is it that I'm actually speaking to? Like I, I have, you know, a specific, you know, audience in mind and, you know, that Mr. Beast kind of look and like that, everybody's got that dumb looking face, whatever. That's not going to resonate probably with the people. Hopefully it's not going to resonate with the people because I'm not going to do that. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like that, that classic look, like it's always surprised and like, oh, yeah, I, I just cringe at the idea of even trying to do that. And I, I refuse to do that actually. So, um, yeah, don't expect that for me. And, and, and yeah, like changing my thumbnail is definitely like, um, it, it, it's that Oscar or sorry, the yeah, Oscar, hopefully I'd get an Oscar next time. Uh, the <laughs> Emmy award, uh, um, uh, video that I did. Uh, yeah, it's like way underperforming. It's, it's like, yeah, not doing very well at all. I'm like, well, maybe it's a thumbnail. Like I can't change the content. So I'll just try a different thumbnail. Um, it's, it's interesting because like now, like it had this like little quick little spike and then it just leveled off with its yeah. reach and its reach is just like, you know, it, it had like, three impressions in the last five hours. Like, okay, this video is probably dead. Um, who yep. knows? I don't know what's going to happen with it in the long term, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe it'll kick off eventually. But so I'm like, okay, well it didn't initially kick off. So I guess I'll change the thumbnail and try something else different. So I, I think that's definitely like a number one thing I need to figure out is like the thumbnail game for sure. And, and probably trying to hire somebody to do it. Cause there's like some great graphic designers that are out there that can do the stuff and this is all they do. And this is all they think about. And they just have that, you know, that you know, attention to detail of like what's working on YouTube and, and stuff. So, um, yeah. To be fair though, if it was doing this and then it plateaus, that's probably not your video. I mean, people don't go from watching something to like not watching it in a second. So like we have a lot of charts that do the same thing. Like it's going up, up, up. And then it just flatlines and you're like, like it was turned off almost. And so you're like, yeah. okay, I, I see what's happening here. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's that whole YouTube algorithm game that you got to play. And I think as the newbies and as us just all kind of starting out, it's, we have to prove to YouTube that we're in it for the long haul. Right. And it's just one of those deals where you just like, and so we have these conversations a lot. It's like, well, 
I have this really good idea, but should we put it out now or should we wait till the algorithm likes us more? Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's like, what do you do? And then the keywording and tagging, mm-hmm. I got an email out of the blue the other day and it's just some bot or probably some who knows what, but it's like, well, we noticed that this video that you have is, it's a good video, but your tags suck. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But I don't know. I mean, we use vidIQ and we've tried some other stuff. And I think that's an art. You know, if you actually find a thumbnail artist that is awesome, please share their name because we could use that too. And the same with the tagging and same with the keywords. And then Brandon is pretty brilliant at using chat GPT. So a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, and he's figured out chat GPT is awesome if you know how to ask the right question. Mm, yes, that's the secure, like how to ask what what to ask and how to ask it. Yeah. Well, and then right? you don't use what it says. Like that's the key thing. So like you just don't dump Chat GPT outputs into your stuff because it won't work. Mm-hmm. And you have to. It's a great first draft, right? And so you you have to then curate that and then ask it. But because so like what a GPT is, it's a generative process that is learning from what you're inputting into it. So the more you input into it, the more it learns what you're asking for. And so it it's one of those things like you're going to get, the more you do it, the better it's going to be, but you have to continue to use it and train it. And so you have to be very thorough of like, I don't like this. Try to use, I don't know. We can, I'll have to come up with an example because that was a pretty terrible uh, answer and descriptive for the audience. But, but yeah, it's very, it's generative based on what you're teaching it and what you're asking it. And so if you just like give up halfway through, then it's like, okay, then I, I did a good job and they they got what they want because they left immediately. Whereas you're kind of fed up with it and it's not working well. And it's a whole, it's a whole process and it's terrible. But I mean, it, sometimes it's just good to just be like, I need this idea because I'm at, I have writer's block or whatever it is. And so you throw it out there and it'll say something and you're like, well, that's a terrible idea, but that is, if I can use this and it's the complete opposite. So if, I mean, it's worth probably just making some requests, I'd say out there for you. And yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely love ChatGPT as well. Yeah. I mean, like often I'll be scripting and I'll just say, ah, I need another way on how to say this. And I'll, I'll take a whole, you know, paragraph or a sentence or even a word or whatever is like, what's the, you know, you know, how, how can you re- rewrite this? Give me like yep. 10 different re- variations of this yep. and use it, you know, in this tone or whatever. And um, yeah, usually like just, it's a good soundboard for sure. And just like, mm-hmm. you know, cr- yeah, throws you like a different curveball, just like exactly. oh, think, a different way of thinking about, you know, your problem. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's a great tool for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, it's funny because the email that Michael got that he's referencing. So they like call, they're like, oh, your video is doing terrible based on all these things because it got a rank of 50 out of 100, right? And so what actually happens is they have all these rankings for keywording and tags and all these things. Well, we had done well on all of that. It was five out of five for everything. But because it had minimal views, we lost out on half of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the view was 50. And it's like, for all these poor chaps that don't actually understand all of this, they're probably going to pay all these people. And all they're going to do is just, try and buy viewership or something and try and push that up. But I don't know. It's a, 
Never, ever. I think that's like the worst strategy ever, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, just create yeah, content you... that people actually engage with or else, yeah, you're just going to get just this like totally yeah, followers that are, you know, not engaging with your content. So like asking your brother, or your mom or whoever to follow your account is not actually like watching your content and they're not going to engage with it. And, you know, you know, with the algorithm, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to push that content out to your you know, your immediate followers, your subscribers. And if they're not look, if they're not watching it or engaging with it, then they're thinking, Oh, this is probably a terrible video. So yep. like, it's yep. not, it's not push us any further and just, and just kill it. So yeah, just organic growth is I think the key to making it actually work for sure. So does AI scare you? Do you think like, um, like some of the stuff Brandon does is like amazing to see, Oh, I just had it create this moose caricature that we'll use on a t-shirt or I'll something. Talk about that. Yeah. So I see this other thing where videos being created now and I'm like, is it going to create the perf perfect wolf sequence just artificially? And I kind of feel like there's no way, there is no way that I, I would be able to pick it out in a second, but maybe not, you know, as it gets smarter and it gets, I have a nephew that works for Google and he, Talk, he works on the AI team and I, it's scary when you talk to him. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like so real and it can be so deceiving that you would never know. But I feel like real human interest stories are real. Hmm. Is that going to be able to be created by AI or is that, I feel like you have to embrace it. You can't say, well, it's like people that were switching from film to digital. If you didn't switch, you just got left way behind. So unless you embrace it, you, you're going to get left behind. But how is it going to fall out? And I hope that nature stories are never told via AI. Well, I mean, they are. Um, I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, prehistoric planet um, oh, yeah. or, um, yeah, life on our planet. I mean, all that is CG. And it is phenomenal. Like, I mean, just like the texture of the animals and the shadows and the way they move. You're like, wow, that's actually pretty good like i mean we will all know that it's fake because it's like dinosaurs and stuff like that <laughs> but like when they start making stuff that's like let's just say like they're gonna do polar bears up in the arctic and you know let's let's see them have a crack at that and see how realistic that looks and that's what scares me that they could pull that off quite convincingly and, and tell whatever story they want and then we're gonna be in some trouble for sure but then that's where like the human interest stories i think are gonna be more prevalent in this industry because uh, yeah, you, you can't, I don't, I don't, we're, we're a long way from being able to fake that, I think. Um, and I, yeah, just, I think also people are going to know there's got to be some kind of like marker saying that this is all digital. This is all digitally enhanced. This is not a real story. And I think there's going to be some, you know, the authenticity of like what these actual stories in these films are, people are going to want to know, is this like an authentic real film or was it just made in a lab somewhere? And I think there's going to have to be some kind of like way of like, and I think there are like protocols out there, like trying to make sure that that stuff is being um, recognized as for what it is. Um, one thing, one film, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's actually a, a docu-series. Uh, it's called uh, light and magic. Have you guys, you guys, have you guys seen mm -hmm. it? No, I don't think no. so. Light and Magic. That one, I've watched this one particular episode multiple times. I think it's a five or six part series. And Light and Magic is based on uh, George Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic. You know, mm -hmm. what he had done with the whole world of like, you know, you know Star Wars. Like, I mean, he, he is the game changer of like visual effects and, 
and what he's done with, um, you know, the way we watch, you know, movies today and, um, going through this whole process from his stardom and to like what the industry ended up becoming is what's going on right now as we speak. Mm -hmm. It is so like incredibly, there's so many parallels of like what's going on. So like they get into this one episode and they talk about Jurassic park and like, so when they made Jurassic park, they made like they had like a lot of like puppet masters and they were actually going to do everything with claymation stop motion that was just like the that's just the way they did everything and they're the best in the world the top you know puppeteers or you know or, or, what do you want to actually call them or or model makers in the industry the best of the best are working on Jurassic Park to make this thing and there's these two guys in this back room and they decided to go well I bet you we can do this digitally and just make these digital dinosaurs and then they just in the back room started like modeling and modeling, modeling on their own time. They didn't tell anybody they were going to do it. Mm. And in the back corner, they just put it on a screen and there some big executives are doing this walkthrough and they look at the screen and they see this moving digital dinosaur and it's walking around. They're like, what is that? Like, what, what is that? That's obviously for Jurassic Park and nobody, George Lucas didn't even know what it was. He was like, yeah. I don't know. And then they actually made like this, like, you know, rendered copy of it and they put it on the big screen and they were like out of their seats, like, no way you just did that. That is just changed the game forever. And then they do like this cut to the, the puppet master guys and they go, well, I guess I'm now extinct. Oh, jeez, <laughs> What a that line. Guy, that guy's job just ended like that. Yep. Wow. It was yeah. Over. Like, it was, it was just like, oh my God, that is crazy. So. I mean, I didn't like t telling you, I didn't ruin anything of this whole story. So like, if you guys oh, the, I'll watch it, it again. Is, yeah. it That's amazing. Beautiful. Like it's well, really well, well shot and interesting stories for sure. And, and just like, goes to show like, you know, what the future is like for us right now and AI, it's the exact same thing. There's people that are going to go like this and there's people that are going to lose their careers and their jobs and their way of living and the way they've always done things like digital and film. It's all this evolution. And if you don't embrace it and go with it, then you're going to be extinct and left behind and yeah yeah grumbling about all of the talking about the old days and the way it used to be and <laughs> it's not going we're not going back to film you know what i mean like it's just, yeah right so. yep i agree 100 percent. that's why I, I i'm really curious to know what people think because a lot of the older generations really have a hard time changing because they're like i spent my whole life doing this but you gotta do it mm -hmm. and then the younger people i just you know, you wonder is, are they going to live in this artificial world forever? Or do they actually want to go out and have these experiences for real? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. I think there's probably, I mean, we talked about Casey Neistat, right? I, my hope, I guess, is that there's always going to be a group of people that are looking for that human connection. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why Casey Neistat did so well. Peter McKinnon, right? The other Canadian that, people talk about but it's like people are always looking for those human connection points even if it's not a face-to-face -face. and i think those stories will continue to be made organically versus ai i just don't how do you script something like this from an ai perspective right like i i know it's possible and they're very smart and especially the more you train it but yeah, will it have that human connection i don't know yeah it's the authenticity. I think that's just going to be like the deciding factor of like, you know, the 
way people view and want to engage with, you know, online world and, and content, right? Like yeah. what's real was this fake. I want to know, right? Like, I mean, it's going to get really good, but like, I mean, our, even our conversations right now, it's like little nuances, right? I'm, you know, right. stumbling on my words, trying to find my words. It's just like a very natural kind of like thought process of some people and just everybody has their little nuances. Well, AI record, you know, be able to do that, you know, like, where i where i would love to see ai go from like what we're filming is there's some you're seeing it in the automotive world right now and also like landscape and on the real estate side but they'll do like these 3d renders right where on a a car they'll scan all the sides and then they'll scan all the periphery and they can almost do like a drone fly through of everything and where it'd be really cool is to start doing that with wildlife and if you can do it without being super like, cause you don't want to impact the behavior on it at all. But if you could start to have it where you'd have a 3d, like you put on an Oculus or whatever the new iPad or the new, uh, vision, Apple Glass vision. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You put this on and then you can start to interact with it. I mean, that's a whole nother level that I think would be really interesting. That could be wildly educational, right. And still help and progress. It progresses the world, <clears throat> but you still need a guy sitting in the field filming it all. If anything, you need more people out there filming because you need all these different angles of the same thing then. Yeah. yeah. So two years ago, I shot that. I had a, oh, really? a BBC production and they, man, it's not out yet. So I don't know if I could talk about it. But yeah, I basically had to film this thing with stills so they could create mm-hmm. this environment of this actual thing. And there's no way I could have shot it with a video. But with stills, I could go in and then they could build the model. And I had to record everything. I had to record angle of shots and, you know, they used the geometry of everything to build it all. And I've not seen it, it's still not out, but it was going to be recreated because what they were trying to get, I could have sat there for 300 days and never got it. Right. But it does happen. They were just going to have to do it digitally as opposed to just paying me to sit there for a year trying to get that one shot that happens and that's where ai is probably going to help right is if you missed a shot if you need to render something in the future that doesn't actually have that's probably where i see that helping near term yeah Mm -hmm. but i think it's what you said james i think it's all replacing the the non-perfect is going to be hard i think just having nate you know i jump in my van i'm going to drive to some place it's the the flat tire moment or it's the the making the coffee in the morning and you know doing something dumb that i don't even know i mean i can't even think of something good example but i think it's that human interest that's just that human connection that will be hard to but who knows i mean what are your thoughts on like um like this is something I kind of battle back and forth it was like you know the the really high curated stuff versus like you know, the, the old school Casey Neistat stuff of just getting out there and going for it and just like making it happen. Now, I, I feel like there's like, there's, I think there's going to be a shift of like this, like high production value, super glossy, um, really well scripted, perfect timing on everything stuff. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I'm hoping because it would be, you know, <laughs> it, you know it's just, it just, it's just more realistic when you, when you see like a normal person just going out there and just doing the stuff, you know what I mean? You've got the gear, you're out there, you're, you get the shots and you tell the story. I, I, I'm leaning into things like that more often. 
then some guy who's just got everything just perfect. Like, you know, every, like, you know, every little zipper is just like perfect shallow depth of feel and just <laughs> tracking right. and the lighting is absolutely just spot on. And, you know, the timing is just like nailed on everything. And I don't know, I'm kind of like losing interest in like, you know, seeing it just always so perfect. And, you know, they've got this monster team trying to tell like this stuff. And I don't know. I think I we're know. all in the same boat. Like we, or at least I know Michael and I are, cause we've talked about this, Eric, I don't know where you're sitting, but like that's all I I find myself not engaging with any of that stuff anymore. Even like the highly curated thumbnails, I'm kinda like, meh. Like mm. I just don't want to deal with it sometimes. Because there's mm. so many times where you click on those thumbnails and it's like clickbait, right? And it's like yeah. how I did this and then they like start in their bed, like waking up and you're like, What? Just show me what I like what you're telling me you're gonna show me and I don't know. I into it like let's just like get to it right and but at the same point in time i feel like i'm not normal in that regard because everyone else just loves that highly curated stuff because it looks i mean there's no doubt well we think that we think that it might be that (laughs) that they love it i don't know i'm with you i mean you referenced it earlier I like the Casey Neistat early stuff better than what he's doing now. I like the Peter McKinnon when he first started. I'm not into what he's doing now, which because it is too perfect. And he's got all the perfect studios. He's got everything. So that original raw kind of like organic stuff is the stuff that got me interested in the first place. Mm-hmm. So YouTube's the perfect place for it, right? Because you can get whatever you want. You can get the perfect and you can get the the real, the organic, the and we'll just have to see how how it resonates and how it moves along and try to produce the content that people want to see. But really I don't want to produce content just because it's successful. I want to produce what I want to produce. And if people like it, great. If they don't, then I'll go flip burgers for a living. <laughs> so what, what, what's your like? What's your contest strategy right now? Like, are you guys uh, po- like how regularly are you posting right now? And like, what's you have like a content schedule you're trying to follow, or are you just um, yeah? What's your what's your process right now? So we post a short every day uh, during the weekdays, Monday through Thursday. We only post once a day. That is mainly from our podcast, just to because we're trying to grow the podcast right now, just because we there's minimal name out there, right? Like you didn't know who truth and legend podcast was. So that's the, the near term focus on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. We double post. So we have a morning post with the podcast and then we'll do a wildlife or something else in the afternoon, just cause it is a slow time for filming and adventures right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we try to post every week for a long form video and then, uh, big adventure at least once a month. But it's but we're throwing tons of mud against the wall, right? right? So it's it's like we have originally we started out like let's do quest videos, and that quest video was just going to be let's go pick a species and let's cover that from start to finish, from the minute we walk out the door with our gear to how we get. It's just like what we were talking about. It's the adventure of getting to where we're going, filming all that, and then the wildlife interaction or whatever we got that was part of the quest and then coming back but that's tough because it's the time of year i mean february and march is terrible in colorado for finding cool wildlife stories so but the summer is chock full of them right so we can do plenty of that in the summer mm-hmm. and a lot of it in the get-go is what's the formula for that 
Um, mm. I didn't know. I, I spent all summer trying to figure out a formula for Eric and I do moose. Mm. If we're not busy on a shoot and I'm in Alaska it's and it's that time of year, I'll spend every day for 40 days filming moose. So as we were doing that this year, I'm like, um, what is this? What, how do we tell this story? What's the best way? Um, do I want to be walking down the trail and talking and then figure out how we want to shoot the wildlife and incorporate that in with this real world kind of stuff? So I'm kind of deviating off the subject, but we have the quest things. Then with the quest things, it's like we may not get everything done. So here recently we came up with this idea where you go out to do a quest thing that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, we don't have all that. You know, we maybe got the beginning and the middle, but we failed to get the end either because that behavior is gone or it snowed and now everything's changed or we didn't have time to go do it. So now we we have a little series that we just started putting out that's called Loose Ends, mm. where we're going to take all that stuff that didn't get kind of completed, quite done, but there's enough there that's cool. So now let's just take three of the not completed things, put them together, and then use our transitions, which in a podcast style format where we just get on and say, oh, yeah, I remember when we went and did American Dippers and we didn't get the nesting sequence because I got on a shoot and I had to go out and do it or the nest was in a pretty obscure place. We couldn't get it. So we build that as one whole segment called Loose Ends. And then we've got the podcast and the podcast is something that's easy, right? Cause we can put out one of these every, every week, no problem. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty quick to edit. Um, we do edit all these. It's not like we just throw it up, but you know, we'll just make it sound perfect so that it's not me sounding like an idiot. Like I do a lot of the times. And then what else do we got? We got how to, we're, st- we, we're trying how to videos. Yep. And then uh, we have one more. What am I forgetting? And then just some wildlife segments. And all, all of this is going on the same channel. Like you got podcasts, you got, you know, all, all these like variables are all like sticking yep. to one board on your. Basically yep. we have like four or five playlists. So one yep. would be the podcast. One would be the quest videos. One would be the loose ends, And then one would be how to. Right. Okay, cool. But we can kind of do that with three or three people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whether we can keep that going, I don't know. Oh, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, I mean, the good thing about right now not having a lot of work and not being out on shoots is there's time to do it. So maybe that'll give us the time to figure out which one of those is the one that everybody wants to see. I don't know. You said you've done a lot of research. I'm sure you watch Gary B. I'm sure you watch Colin and Samir, all these people that are just completely studying YouTube. You know, once you see these guys, I mean, the one thing that Gary Vee saying is podcasts are it, man. You can get so much content out of one podcast. So the amount of shorts that we can produce out of this particular podcast, I mean, there's little moments of brilliance that we've all had during this podcast that would be a great short. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully that promotes the podcast so that in the short you link to the podcast and then you start growing that audience. Yep. I don't know. I don't know that we know what we're doing, but we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> are you doing it yeah yeah and that's and that's just it you got to just kind of throw everything at it um just see what sticks see it works see what workflow is working best for you and you know what's what are people engaging with actually that's that's the big one um yeah like what what are people more interacting with and that you can you can replicate again and again and again so 
yeah, I mean, like I say, like, yeah, my, my Emmy um, video is not doing well. So I changed the thumbnail and everything like that, but it's kind of crazy. I've actually gotten a lot of messages just off of that one video, like, uh, uh, you know, Which in the comments awesome. and then offline, I've gotten a, a bunch of direct emails to me. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. People are actually really yeah. resonating with yeah. that content, even though it only has a couple, you know, not, not even 200 views, but I'm like, oh, the engagement was really high. That's, that's really interesting. So. Yeah. And, and you know, that, you know, as, as, as personally as my like content shifts, YouTube's still trying to figure out, well, what is this guy actually doing? So they're trying to figure out how to categorize, um, you know, myself and yourself and trying to how to slot in and how to, how to, you know, share your content out there. So yeah, it's definitely a, a learning curve for sure. Uh, but I really enjoy it though. Do you guys enjoy doing this? this is like, so much. I, I can tell you do enjoy it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's fun. Well, it's just, well, like you control everything, right? If you mess it up, it's your fault. If you miss something, it's your fault. If it goes really well, you get to take all the credit for it. It's just, yeah. I don't know. It's no holds barred. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we just need to make a jillion dollars doing it. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you what we've made uh, here in the past week off those videos we posted. <laughs> oh, really? oh no way! Yeah, yeah. Good, right? <laughs> are you monetizing zeros? <laughs> no, it's neither are we. So no, yeah. not even close. Actually, yeah, that's no, interesting. Yeah, I've got another friend, my my buddy Henrik. He's a photographer, and you know, him and I have been uh, bashing ideas. We're, we're you know like similarish niche, but um, you know, he's got a you know different way of doing his thing. He's a really really talented guy, and um, yeah, so he, he's been doing quite well. So him and I bounce a lot of uh, ideas off each other, and. He's, he's starting to realize that, you know, turning the camera on himself and not just showing pretty <laughs> images of animals is starting to work way better. And his, uh, you know, his view counts are getting, you know, significantly higher and his watch time is getting significantly higher. And like, okay, well, there was definitely something there for him. So he's starting to lean into more of a, you know, how to, a bit of like gear, kind of talking about gear a little bit. And, and, and you know, like that's kind of the reason why I go to YouTube, right? Like I want to like go to YouTube. I want to learn something interesting and be entertained at the same time. So yeah, it's just like trying to figure out what's, you know, finding your voice and finding your, your, your workflow and, and then yeah. just going with it and leaning into it. Well, and I don't, the nice thing about YouTube is I don't think it's as cutthroat as I'm going to say Hollywood, just to categorize that kind of Hollywood versus YouTube, right? Like if they watch us, they're going to watch you. They're going to watch Morton. They're going to watch all of these people. And the, there's not enough content out there for that. And I think that's one of the reasons that they have to go back to the Netflix series and watch that because there's just not enough content out there on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So I think the more of us that are making it, the better off we're all going to be. And I don't think there's as much gatekeeping on YouTube side. I mean, there's always gatekeepers, but for the most part, like we'll talk to you about what we're doing. You'll talk about what you're doing. And I mean, there's always like the, the secrets of like locations. Right. But that's more for protection of the animals because we don't want just a bunch of tourists going there and ruining it. But I don't know. I think there's more, the more content is going to be better for all of us, I think in the long run. So we'll see how mm -hmm. it all goes. Yeah. I think, you know what? I mean, we look at this, like, you know, where we're at with like YouTube and, and social media and, and, and the way, you know, content developers are creating content and sharing stuff. I still think it's the wild west and in, in, in its infancy, it's not going anywhere. And, and if anything, if they're just going to keep building it up more and more, like I heard some like weird stat that there's like, like 2 billion people like 
watching YouTube or something crazy like that, like a crazy figure. And there's more people watching YouTube than there are watching Netflix, Disney, Amazon, uh, like all these stream platforms combined by a lot. There's more people yeah. watching that. So it's like, if you're looking for audience, I mean, it's right there. You know what I mean? Like if you want to tell stories and you, you know, you want to have a crack at it, I mean, like there's, there's, there's no gatekeeper. You just go make it and put it out right. there. And, yeah. Yeah, well, I think the only gatekeeper for us right now is the algorithm, right? And all we have to do is prove that we're going to stay in the game. And I think because it's exactly what Brandon referred to, you get up, 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 and then the flatlines. Well, that's with flatlines when YouTube quits putting it out on their feed. Right. So yeah. as long as they you keep doing that, I think they let it go a little longer, and then they let it go. You hit the three thousand watch hour mark, and then you get all these little few more tools, and then. You hit the four thousand mark, and then, you know, I think it 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 ends up working where then you're on your way. But you've got to prove that's the only gatekeeper is you mm. proving to YouTube that you're consistent. You're going to stick with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if it, and if it was easy, then everybody would have done it, and then there'd be no money to be made in this. So I think, like you know, that having that challenge and making it actually, you know, having that as a threshold. There are thresholds out there, and but. Just and everybody, you put up a video and it's gonna go crazy and you're gonna make tons of money. Right. Like, this just makes sense, right? So, right. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, if, even if it is two billion people, like that means there's another five or there's another, yeah, five billion people that can tune in. Can you, like, right. just think about that, right? It's okay. insane. Like, I can't even fathom that number. Well, we've gone about an hour and 45 minutes, so I think we've probably taken up enough of your time, but man, we really appreciate having you on the podcast and, um, we, I would love to stay in touch with you offline and, and just yeah. follow you along and maybe we can get a chance to go shoot something. I've got some questions for you once we get done with this podcast about <laughs> a couple of the, the shots that you got. Not necessarily locations, but just more behind the scenes that I don't think anybody's really going to care about. But yeah. we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks. Great.